Welcome to the weekly review. It's Friday, June 
2017. This is Roman. We are here live at Mutiny Radio here in the Mission District in San Francisco, in California, in a country that's, well, ugh. So that song was by David Bowie, of course, I'm Afraid of Americans. That came out 20 years ago, exactly 20 years ago, in 1997. There's lots of reasons to be afraid of Americans, even if you are an American, as some of us listeners are here. Uh, definitely feel that. A lot's happening. We'll be talking with Charlie Toledo at 12.15 here at the station. Charlie will be calling in. Looking forward to having that conversation. We'll be talking about CEDA, and that's C-E-D-A-W. And that stands for the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Awesome. Looking forward to having that conversation. We'll also be having the usual news stories about how <laughs> things are kind of falling apart. Things are already falling how do we how do we talk about what's happening? Also, trigger warning, this is a show where we talk about the news, current events, things that are happening, people in positions of power doing heinous things and not being held accountable. And there's also people who are standing up, people who are protesting. People protested at SFO last night because of the fucking stupid travel ban, bullshit, fucking... This is why I'm also not a reporter. Not so much because I swear, more because it's atrocious and I guess there's that idea that, oh, if you're a reporter, you're supposed to be unbiased. And I, I care about humanity. I don't know why I do, because humanity seems to disappoint me day after day. I shouldn't say all of humanity, certain aspects of humanity, certain people in positions of power, law enforcement, government, etc. There's that Democrat, speaking of which, I'm not a fan of Democrats. And just because I'm not a fan of Democrats doesn't mean I'm a fan of Republicans, which sometimes people think if you don't like one thing, you have to like the other. You could also dislike both. You could also be highly disturbed by both parties. <sighs> One of the Democrats in California was taking money from the insurance company, so he, and, I shouldn't say so, and, therefore, he's not too into the whole single-payer single thing, so he's blocked that. He received a $700,000 bribe, or however you want to use that. So there's people who are pretty much okay with pissing on the rest of us. Not a fan of that. There's also an article I'll get to later, which I think is incredibly important. And this talks about how uh, the more power you get, the bad it, how it's bad for your brain. And the, the title of the article is Power Causes Brain Damage. And perhaps we should send this out to a lot of people out there who are doing just that. Uh, there's people here locally. There's people on the national level, people internationally. It seems the more power one has, the worse, the worse people are. So that's a really interesting article. It's also, I think, crucial to take a look at the psychological aspects of why things are happening in a way. In addition to the fact that this, the, these terrible things have been happening for a long time, it didn't just start in November or in January. It's, it's not like, oh, suddenly, now things are bad here in the country. There, things have been unfair and unjust for a lot of people for a very long time. And when folks say, oh, the system isn't working, a lot of folks say, well, no, the system is working exactly as it's supposed to, which is to harm a lot of people. <sighs> Welcome to the show. Maybe it'll be funny this week. Uh, we'll see. We'll get there. Last week, uh, Marga Gomez was on the show. Had a great conversation with Marga. Learned a lot about uh, lesbian, lesbian separatists and uh, folks who do that thing. That was a, a good story. We had a good time. So listen to that episode. That's from last week. Definitely that episode had a lot more levity than some of these other episodes do. 
So just doing a plug. Also, if you'd like to support the radio station, we always could use some funds. Go to mutinyradio.fm. I'm also doing a Patreon here for the Weekly Review. I've been doing this show now since 2013, and we're very much looking for sponsors. Some people have sponsored the show, and we're very grateful for that. And if you would also like to, even a dollar a month, seriously, it would be a huge help. So if you go to patreon.com slash weeklyrev, um, please do donate. We can do monthly donations. If you want to do a one-time donation, you can also Venmo me, contact me, uh, find a way to do that. That would be really helpful, too. So we're just trying to see if we can continue doing the show here. Um, we do it because we love it, and we feel the need to get the word out about what's actually happening in the world instead of the the mainstream media, which spins it in a certain way, and also gets paid. They get big payouts. I don't, you know, it's we're just renting the space. I'm sharing the news that I hear from friends. A lot of folks I know are activists, community organizers. So really want to get out the word of what's happening before it's too late. Maybe it is too late. Not to be not to be a fatalist about this, but come on. Things are pretty bad. There's this also recent story about how they're going to look into the voter registration to look at people's how people voted and their birthdays and their social security numbers. I mean, fascism's here, folks. Uh, it didn't it's not like, oh, maybe it's happening. It's definitely happening. We've got the fucking travel ban. We've got an increase in hate crime attacks. We've got these assholes wanting to make it even harder to get health care than it already is. There are still folks in different states wanting to curb the rights to protest. Uh, Everything we're looking at right now, uh, not everything, but a lot of things uh, are pretty detrimental to people's actual freedom and liberty which as i was saying before you know it wasn't always it's not even like things were even okay six months ago i mean i started doing the show we started doing the show molly and i in 2013 and it wasn't like oh things are yes there are some some prog- quote-unquote progress being made in some areas in terms of legalization of cannabis for instance and now we have a jeff sessions who thinks it's a problem who i can't ugh. I encourage folks to take action any way you can. There, of course, is the idea of diversity of tactics any way you can, whether that's getting out in the streets, whether that's donating capital to grassroots organizations, whether that's spreading the word, whether that's speaking out, being a fucking whistleblower, whether that is putting a wrench in the system, whether that's creating new systems, which I think is probably the most important thing. What can we go towards as the system crumbles? And I think about in terms of police and prisons, which are I get angry about a lot of things. Police and prisons are a big component of that where it's just unjust and people are mistreated and people are abused and then people profit off it it's like sick on so many levels and we need to create alternatives because we can say okay we want to like live without this and then what are we going to go towards is that going to be more community watching out for itself and more community accountability which sounds great and at the same time we have to do that and i'm including myself in that one has to be held accountable we have to do the work to make that happen instead of just it's easy to be like oh I'll let someone else do that that's very easy to do that's how a lot of us are we'd rather have someone else take care of the problem whatever that problem is so how can we create a new way of living that doesn't that is less at the hands of the state yesterday I saw police harass and actually arrest a person who was on the street. They weren't doing anything wrong. It was one police officer, then another one came by, because I guess you need two people there to harass someone who's sleeping on the street. This person was not causing anyone any harm. It was really disgusting. It's not the first time I've seen it happen. 
It was about a block away, less than a block away from the police station in the mission. It was on Valencia. There were a lot of us watching and there's that sense of not doing enough. And like, how do we, how do we stop this from happening on a, on a larger scale, on an individual scale, and then on a larger scale, it's unjust. And at times it feels really, I've been in this situation a number of times, like cop watching is one way you can partake. If you see cops harassing anyone, you stand and you watch, you can also record it. You can watch, you can be a witness. You can encourage other folks who are also passing by because a lot of people, either they don't, they don't know it's happening or they're afraid to stop by. The more people you have there, the, the more, hopefully the more accountability police will have. And also, if they're not doing anything wrong, they've got nothing to worry about. However, they do get sometimes very defensive, especially if you question them. So the question is, of course, how to either de-arrest people or how to stand up. And then, of course, one worries about their own safety, which is like, I think it's partially ego-driven. You know, when are we going to actually rise up for the greater good? And then also recognizing when, which, which battles, you know, which battles do we pick? Because if we were to go after cops every time they wrongfully arrested someone, that's all we would be doing. But maybe that's all we should be doing. So that's one thing that's happening. There are some positive news stories. I'll find them. There's a lawyer in New York who has uh, argued that the NYPD now have to release information. It shouldn't seem like that's something that one has to argue for. However, that the police get away with a lot. So there's a lawyer out there. So hopefully, if time does us well, we will get to that article by the end of the show. And I also think it's crucial to talk about the positive things that are happening because we need something to hold on to that's hopeful and positive. So we will we will get to that. Also, in Oakland, there's a Museum of Capitalism. And at first, I heard, heard about it. A friend and I heard about it. And we're like, what is this? And a lot of people were like, what? Capitalism's bad. Boo. However, the museum is kind of highlighting exactly what it is, which is just how destructive it is. And encourage folks to go. And I also picked up a pamphlet there that's the Capitalist Bathroom Experience that I'll be reading from. And I think most folks in this world, especially folks who are on the transgender variant, non-binary, we can add language and change language as we go, uh, experience can recognize that bathrooms are policed in this country and capitalism kind of goes through that and not even just on the gender level on the availability level so we can also talk about class like who has access to bathrooms and there's not a lot of public bathrooms out there and why is that and it's a very good example of just a basic need that everyone needs to use the bathroom yet they are so restrictive and then also looking at the history of segregation of bathrooms so it's just very representative of capitalism pretty much this idea that you have to be a certain way or look a certain way or have certain class to enter to use a facility and how that is used to discriminate against people there's a whole booklet on it i'm sure oops as i read it i will learn a lot and i imagine you will as well so that's coming up on the show today we'll also be playing some more music and yeah it's always good to kind of cleanse the palate a bit with musical choices here on the show Later on, I'll be playing uh, one of my favorite songs, Heroin, and it was originally by Velvet Underground. I'm a big Lou Reed fan, and that song's been in my mind a lot. And there's one lyric in particular where he's just talking about, well, the world's terrible, and this is why I do drugs, which is, I think, very relatable for a lot of us, even those of us who don't necessarily do drugs at the moment. It's, it makes sense why one might want to escape or to kind of just check out for a little bit or a long time. And one of the lines is, uh, I'm so tired of everybody putting everybody else down. And also, there's another line about politicians making crazy sounds. Still true, and dead, po- dead bodies piled up in mounds. It's very much 
and this was of course written in the like the set late 60s early 70s and we have a call that's charlie on the phone so hold on real quick hello welcome to mutiny radio this is uh, Charlie Toledo. I was calling for uh, Roman. Hi, Charlie. Yeah, this is Roman. Thanks hey, for calling Charlie. in. Good, thanks. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me call in. Yeah. Yeah, so just getting started with uh, everything that's happening in the in the country right now and what we can do to, to deal with it and to change it and to build better, sustainable living for everybody. Yeah. And I think what one of the things that we had talked about last time I was on your show, and I appreciated it, was um, just keeping our, our minds and bodies healthy and focused. Yes. And it's really easy right now with what's going on is to get distracted by the chaos. And I think that's the intention, you know, is to get everybody reacting to what's occurring. And as long as we react and we become, you know, there's no plan and it's chaotic and we're actually feeding the chaos. And so... Um, mm. It's important to have some kind of meditation practice. You yes. Know, you get centered and grounded and self-care. Yeah. But also things like Cities for CEDAW, which I talked about last time I was on the show, too. That's a plan that has been developed over 20 years. Mm-hmm. And it got kicked off last August in San Francisco. Yeah. And San Francisco is the model for that. And what CEDAW is, is a, it sounds old-fashioned because it was from back in the 60s, but it was... Um, was it the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women? Mm-hmm. And that was a 12-point plan of what to do to help women not have, you know, be discriminated against. Yes. And that got changed in 1995 to what was called the Beijing Plan of Action, where 30,000 women around the world got together in uh, China mm-hmm. and came up with a 12-point plan. They actually took the, the convention's... Uh, ideals and put them into this is what this would look like Mm. so it became a working plan and unfortunately the united states didn't sign that treaty but most of the countries of the world did yeah but what was found out that when even though we kept struggling in in small ways to get it to uh, be approved what came up in san francisco some of the people that we were working with through women's intercultural network which was working to get human rights for women and children in the united states but also around the world was that, you know, just to take smaller steps. You know, if we took a really big step, we envisioned what the world would be like if women were protected and everybody had health care and access to education and economic development and housing and food and safety, um, What, how that would look. You know, in the idealized world that we were in, in Wairo, which is a small city outside of Beijing, mm-hmm. these 30,000 women, it was a wonderful experience. But then when we came back to our worlds, we realized we're not there yet. Yeah. And so one of our strategies was, okay, let's take small steps. So we thought, let's get California to approve mm-hmm. this plan, which they didn't. And then what uh, one woman did, uh, came up with the idea, maybe San Francisco, our city, would sign it. And everybody was telling her, no, you can't. a city can't sign an international oh. treaty. Mm. But Willie Brown was the governor at that time, and or not the governor, but the mayor mm-hmm. <laughs> of San Francisco. And he did sign it oh. and put money behind it. So San Francisco, Great. 10 years ago, implemented... Uh, what is now being referred to as Cities for CEDAW, mm. because what's happened now, just this last year, so it's 2017, so it's how much longer from 1995 to 2000 to 17 years later. Wow. Um, that has become an international plan, because when that happened, when the UN, the United Nations, decided to support uh, Women's Intercultural Network in this city strategy, the United States was finally 
invited to come to Geneva, which was an annual gathering of people that had signed that convention back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Or it was 1986, I think that it was, actually. Um, and they were hearing about the Cities for CEDAW strategy, which is a strategy to implement this idealized plan. And they realized all these countries that had signed the treaty way back then, they weren't implementing it. None of oh. them were implementing it. They mm. just had it as an idealized umbrella. Mm -hmm. And so then what was done in San Francisco 10 years ago actually became and has become a working model for the world mm. for the implementation of human rights for women and children. Nice. And so you can see how I'm giving a very broad-based sweep to a very large, you know, picture. Yeah. But that, you know, it only happens, it only works if you have it in the community where you live. Mm. And so even though we're kind of going at it backwards here in the United States, it's actually now become the leader model for the world. Wow. And I think that now with the presidential, the situation in Washington is how we refer to it, the way that it's going. Yes. It really emphasizes the need for a plan like this. Yes. That it can't be focused, you know, that one person in far away from us in California can affect our lives so much and uh, really put it into such chaos that we do need, you know, a constitutional protection yes. uh, for our human rights. Yes. And I think that, that when you're focused on working on something like that and thinking about it and trying to figure out how to get it, how to get it to the ground, it keeps you busy so you don't get frustrated. Yeah. You, realize you just see something as, oh, there's another, you know, if you were, a, what is that called, those long distance runners that have to jump over those hurdles oh like uh, hurdle running yeah <laughs> i know what you're talking about um, that if you're doing that you you're in really good shape you know this is the one person who sprints you know they can yes. run really fast for a short distance and then there's the marathon runners or the triathlons and that takes a whole nother kind of stamina yes but if we all think of it that this is a big haul you know we're revamping the way that humans live on the earth mm -hmm. and that included in this human rights which is a huge movement here in the United States and through the indigenous people, because I didn't really identify myself, which is I'm Charlie Toledo. I'm the director of Susco Intertribal Council, which is a Native American organization based in Napa Valley. Mm -hmm. And we come to the city a lot. And this was founded in 1972. But, you know, the indigenous people, especially in California, they were nearly wiped out. You know, 60,000 years they lived here in sustainable, organic, friendly, you know, nonviolent communities. And, um, there really was that idealized life where two hours a day were spent, you know, trying to take care of your physical needs of food and shelter. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the time was spent in, uh, you know, singing songs, weaving baskets, swimming, running, hiking, uh, gambling, you know, just enjoyment, mm -hmm. storytelling, passing on the traditions and uh, oral traditions and stories to the next generation. Yes. Caring for the elder, caring for the young. It was very sustainable. Mm -hmm. It was very civilized. And that's a myth, you know, it's kind of put forth as a myth, you know. Oh, the people that were here, but they were just wandering around, and Europeans <sighs> came, and they, you know, developed it, and that it was something better. But Ugh. really, you know, as everybody's coming to realize what the indigenous people, and if we look just to this area, the Ohlone people in San Francisco, the Miwok on the coast, uh, Patvin and the Onasati and the Pomo and the Ohlone and Maidu and... Konka, Wailaki, all the tribes of this region of, you know, and then there was over 300 tribes in California, mm -hmm. they were living here for, in Napa for 40, you know, 60,000 years. Mm. But in most parts of the United States for 10,000 years, mm -hmm. that's a long time. Yeah. And they were living sustainably. Yes. And uh, cooperatively. Yes. And that's where they, you know, they being the European invaders were seeing, oh, these guys are savages, mm. they didn't have any 
you know, they weren't civilized. They were just hanging out, doing nothing. They were lazy. And that's all, that wasn't what's true. I mean, you look at California basketry and you look at the complex societies and the oral traditions. You know, people were living, they, we had astrology. We had, you know, people were navigating the oceans and traveling the world. You know, we just weren't conquering the people and killing them. We were trading with them. And yeah. If we liked the place, people would go and intermarry and people would come here and people would leave. You know, there's all kinds of, the Pacific Ocean was um, well-traveled. Uh, with the tides and I used to think sailboats but from the oral traditions that are coming out of Central America that they really just traveled in canoes and traveled on the tides they didn't paddle or anything they just certain times of the year the seasons you could put into a tide and the tide would carry you across the the Mm. China you know to carry you to Hawaii and so it was very civilized and you know so I just think that well we can come to what is the larger picture yeah I think one of your posts you know on Facebook kind of engendered this conversation because you were getting frustrated and and I think if you just look at at the things that aren't working it's really easy to get frustrated yes yes you know scared yes and I think that our challenge now as intelligent human beings is is to be without fear Mm. really to live our lives bravely and courageously yeah and um, and so that's what I was hoping the conversation would be like, you know, just to for people rather than reacting to everything the buffoon at the front stage, you know, if you see that as a distraction, yeah, and don't pay, hardly pay attention to. It. I mean, we have to pay attention to a point that we're protesting and calling our senators and our congresspeople and telling them, no, we don't support that. No, we want a single payer yes. health care. Yes, and really saying what is the solution to what we're looking at. Yes. So what kind of solutions do you imagine when you look at it from that perspective? Ooh. I mean, it's really, it seems so, I mean, similar to what you were describing, how things were before Europeans came here, really a sustainable society where people took care of each other and there was not the amount of work, quote unquote, that folks do now under capitalism, where there's this kind of grueling um, people just spending the majority of their time working to make money to then take care of themselves and still coming up short. So really a, a demilitarization, I would say, no, getting to the point where there is no prisons, no law enforcement, really community accountability where people can live safely and take care of one another without the, the state kind of coming in and telling people what they can or cannot do. Mm-hmm. And so what would you see? See, if you, if you put that idealized picture, then what would you do right now to start making steps towards that reality? I think working, going out, getting the word out, speaking to having folks talk to their neighbors and for the communities that they're in and getting to know each other, first of all, which I think folks are encouraged or discouraged from doing in, in this culture. Certainly there's very much this idea of individualism and keeping to oneself. And I think there needs to be more of going out, getting to know your neighbors and then looking out for each other so one can kind of, we can create the community accountability for each other and so people will be less likely to then call the police or less likely to get other folks who don't necessarily live in the community involved in what's happening. Yeah, and I think that's a good plan and and when you look at it, that's something that you could start doing right now and you do actually through your radio show but just in your words and actions what's really called a community watch. Mm -hmm. And living up here in Napa, which is a smaller community, that is actually the solution model. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that we've done is gone through a lot of um, disasters. You know, we've had floods, we've had fires, we've had uh, earthquakes, just in the last decade. I know where I was living in downtown Napa, and 
the 17 years I lived there, it was seven floods in 17 years. So it was every other wow. year was a major flood. And then there was two more floods. So And then, then we had that really major earthquake that this community is still recovering from. Mm-hmm. And and what I know about this community, seeing that we've done, gone through so many major disasters just in the last 20 years have been, you know, probably one a year or every other year at least, uh, that the community comes together and people do watch out for each other. And there's a whole volunteer system set up. Neighbors watch for neighbors. Like when we were flooding all the time, we knew all our neighbors. And one street that had flooded really badly, we realized the second time it was flooding, we were going house to house, the people who lived there in the community, just that little neighborhood that flooded. Um, and one of my neighbors had run over and said, oh, the people over there, you know, on, on, I forget what the name of the street was, but it means uh, uh, flooding street. <laughs> but it flooded every year, unfortunately. It was just right on the creek bank, which was a bad planning on the part of the city. But they said, none of those people have been getting ready to leave. And we realized, oh, all the people the flood had been so bad. All the people had moved, and so it was all new people that had moved into these eight houses that were right on the creek. Mm. And so we just went, you know, door to door and told those people, you need to start getting prepared to get out of here now <laughs> because that creek's going to come and there's going to be water and mud in your houses. And that sort. And then we were always there to help each other clean up, and the whole town came together to help everybody clean up. It, you know, it was people that weren't in the floodplain came. When the earthquake happened, people came... Um, from all over, really, to help other people. I think even that night, you know, because all the power was out, there was fires everywhere. A lot of people thought that there had been bombings because the, the epicenter was right through the middle of downtown. Wow. And it sounded like huge explosions, you know. It sounded like a rail train. And so with the power out, people thought, oh, there was a, an explosion. And people on the hills saw, you know, big flares of red and green that I guess the earth itself, I saw brick white flashes of light and I thought transformers were exploding mm. and so when I went out right after the earth you know stopped shaking I went outside and it was very quiet and the telephone poles were all still standing I thought wow that sure was noisy and so I kept asking people and a few people had been awake like I had been at three in the morning and they had seen those white flashes of light other people had seen flashes of red light and what we found out later is that was actually the earth releasing phosphorescent light wow and to me, yeah, just like, wow, that sounds very magical. <clears throat> and it felt very magical. It felt like the Earth is going through this, you know, she's a living being and has moods and transformations. But to realize the Earth was actually releasing light. Hmm. And that didn't hit the media so much, although I did research it, you know, shortly after when we got the power back after a few days. Uh, but Napa was out of water, some parts of Napa, for 10, to, 10 days to three weeks. Oh, wow. And people don't know that. But what happened is the community pulled together. You yeah. know, everybody was taking care of everybody. The, the churches and the hospitals and neighborhoods set up centers to help people. You know, family members and friends helped the people that didn't have water. They opened up their houses so they could shower and uh, come and have drinking water. And um, and then without power, you know, just there was a whole community effort. And people just hit the streets, not that night because there was so much destruction, but the next day all kinds of contractors were in their big trucks. You know, people with tractors brought their tractors into downtown. And some the hardware store just loaded up. And the guy had a broken leg, but he loaded up all this plywood and literally was just going through downtown and giving away big planks of plywood so people could board up their broken windows and stuff. Huh. And that's the kind of effort that you want a community to have and so that we really as a whole community have practiced that we've had the practice for all of that to help each other yeah and i think that major cities when you look to your neighborhood 
you know, who are the people that live right next door to you? What if you mm-hmm. make a point to know the five people that live right, you know, on your block? Yes. Or yeah. your apartment building. Yeah. And your workplace. And I think that that's the key, that that's a very small step, mm-hmm. but it's a really important step. And uh, it gives you hope. You yeah. Because it, it, you cut together for potlucks. You get together a disaster plan. You uh, know where the people's, you know, children are, things like that. Because then sometimes um, what happens, and I know I always did that when my kids were in school. Of course, they're adults now, but I see my adult daughter with her children and grandchildren. You know, there's an emergency plan for the kids. Yeah. And so that if something happens that um, there's a group of four to five people that know what to do. You know, you've got a backup of four to five people. I always think five is a magical number. Mm Mm-hmm. And I used to always wonder why five, but I knew when I work on the different projects I work on, if five people were at the table working, that it was easy and everything mm. got done. Yeah. And it would be fun. And I, I always said five monkeys. If you have five monkeys, and once I was asking myself, you know, I wonder why it's five. But I realized, of course, we've got five, you know, we've got our thumb and our four fingers. We've got that five as mm. our hand. And for some reason, the number five is kind of a magical number as far as cooperation and project building. Huh. And at the U.N., at the United States, you go to the United States or Sacramento, when you get into um, any kind of project, whatever it is, you know, the Delta Tunnels, the, any kind of thing, it might seem really big or small, that really when you come to the table of who's really making the decisions and making it move forward, there's usually a group of five people. Huh. And I call that the working core. Cool. And I think that's the illusion that people think we need to be in a big, giant mass, which mm-hmm. occasionally we do, you know, for big concerts, that's fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, not for me so much, but for a lot of people, thousands of people dancing to music, that's that conscious, that, you know, celebratory uh, collective mind. But really when we're working to change things at a core level that we're talking about, sustainability and compassion and, you know, the courage, you know, the courage to move forth and make the changes that need to happen, uh, that really it's a working core of five. Huh. And so you think, know five neighbors, even where you work, you know, where your radio station is. Know the five neighbors from your radio station. Yeah. Know five people that take the same BART station in the bus with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just to make the time to break those barriers and, and, and reach out. Just like you said, I think you you see in your core, you know, I ask you, you've got a plan, you know, <laughs> and it's a good plan. Yeah. And that sounds similar to, I went to a workshop a few months ago and it was about creating pods and it's very similar to what you were, what you're just describing. And I don't know if the number was necessarily five, but it was pretty much, you put yourself in the middle and then they gave us a diagram in the center. There's a circle, you put your name in there and that circle is surrounded by a few other circles. And then you put in the names of people that you feel you would contact in case of an emergency. And then beyond that circle, there's another circle that's a little bit larger. So people beyond that. So it's really creating Yes, creating like a, a network of people that you will contact in case something happens. Right. And that's a really, it's good to have that plan written. Like I said, being through as many disasters as I've been through, I know the first time that we had a flood and I had been living in the country in a very idyllic situation. I had just moved into downtown Napa, so for the first time in 20 years of my adult life, and I still had my children were still young, I was living in an urban setting, and suddenly the streets were running, and I had no place in my brain to think of what do you do in a flood i knew what to do in a fire i knew what to do in an earthquake but mm-hmm. all of a sudden i thought what do you do in a flood and what you do is you get in your car and get the hell out of there but um you know you have to get to high high ground um but i didn't know where to go and and that's where you realize you have to have a plan already yes in place because when the situation comes up you need a plan already you need your brain needs to something that just it, with, without thinking without thought it moves into action mm. 
And I think we can do that same thing as far as police awareness. You were talking about the situation where you saw that person get arrested. Yeah. You know, ACLU does have a, an app that you can put on your phone mm -hmm. that if you're taping us something, you can send it to that app so it's automatically recording. There. Yes. So even if your phone gets confiscated or destroyed, that still gets sent to the ACLU. Yeah, I think it's called SCA Justice is the name of the, the app. Right, and yeah. that's good just to let people know about that. Mm -hmm. and. And to see if you're wa witnessing a situation like that, who's got a phone? Yes, yes. And those are ways that we get that that unit of four, you know, that that unit of five. Because then, if you're thinking what you're describing is five circles, and it might be a group of, you know, after that earthquake that was really intense. I've been through earthquakes because I lived in California most of my life, but this one we were pretty much right on the epicenter, and that's a really different experience because it's so noisy you mm. know it really does sound i thought telephone poles were crashing and then people had described it before there was another earthquake we'd had and people that were on that epicenter said they thought a boeing you know 707 had crashed into the forest and exploded in their front yard and that is the sound and you know since i don't live in the woods i thought it was the telephone poles and the bright white light but I just started counting, and people said, why were you counting? And I said, well, to know how long the earthquake was. And then they said, well, what did you get to? And I said, well, 33. And so my grandson has heard that story, and he's six. But there was recently we had the thunder and lightning, unseasonal thunder and lightning a few weeks ago uh, with real big hail. And he just started immediately counting the distance between the lightning and the thunder. And he'll say, well, Grandma says that's how far it is. And he knows during the earthquake to start counting. Mm. But it keeps you calm. It keeps you focused. And then because I do know all my neighbors, uh, when I walked outside and some of my other neighbors had walked outside, we all just did a verbal check-in all the way down the street. Oh, wow. Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And everybody was okay. And then a cluster of us that live right next to each other were talking about what to do. And everybody just checked in with everybody really quickly. And we realized really where we were, there wasn't damage. But I knew from the sound of the, the train that was leaving the station that it had gone right through downtown Napa out to the river. And, and some of those places on the epicenter, the earth actually opened up. Wow. And that opening is six miles deep, and steam was coming out of it. Oof. So those are things people don't know, but when you realize, you know, the Earth is uh, a living being and is constantly changing. And what that is is volcanic activity. And I know that m one of my friends who lives on a place on Dry Creek Road, kind of on the eastern side, where there have been some active fault lines already this last decade, um, they had a big crack, you know, about a eight-inch crack, and uh, when they had the GPS people come out, they said it was six miles deep, which is pretty much what they were saying at six miles down, uh, but their telephone poles uh, fell. They did have their full, and then they lost all their power, and there were fires and stuff, but what they realized is that she was saying, because she was just sort of in a state of shock and wasn't understanding, and so when I was telling her about what happened out at Cutting Swarf, that there was this two-foot-wide hole or crack that went all the way from Highway 121, which is one of the western routes into Napa, all the way to the river, which was about five miles long, a foot to two feet wide, and six miles down. Well, those things, they, you can't fill them in. <laughs> then you just have a crack. So Caltrans is just constantly repaving the road there. But when we were talking about her husband, who's an architect, and she was saying, what does that mean? Where was the steam? I said, well, that's volcanic activity. And she said, well, what does volcanic activity mean? Because she didn't know what that meant. And what that means is we're, you know, Napa is a, actually most of Northern California is, you know, has a lot of volcanoes. Mm. Mount St. Helena, here in Napa there's two, you know, calderas. And 
out the heights where I live, there's actually these rocky ridges that are fissures from, you know, volcanoes. And uh, so you just um, have to be prepared for change yes. and have support systems around you. Yeah. And then realize, you know, because this woman, she wasn't understanding what was going on. And so she uh, was kind of going into a panic. And so I just said, just calm down. You know, at this point, it doesn't mean anything. But what it means in the long run is that, you know, we have to be prepared to take care of ourselves. Yes. And that we can criticize what's happening in Washington or what's happening in New York City or any place. But ultimately, it's us here with the people that live close to you and around you that, you know, we have to have those support systems set out in place. Yeah, that's very also true. to be proactive. Yeah. And uh, and and so I think with your plan, with your idea, that that's really good to you know to keep that in mind, and and then to implement it, to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, don't just think about it, but have it in place. And that's why I was kind of getting back into that emergency. Yes. You never know when those things are going to happen, so you have to have the plan in place. Yes. So that you can act rather than react. Yeah. Because when we're reacting, that's actually a panic reaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets us chaotic, and that's what gets us burnt out. Yeah. And I see that a lot of people, you know, when all those people hit the streets and the Women's March and the things that were happening, now all those people are like, they seem to be exhausted. Yeah. They really didn't have a plan. For whatever reason, I always think the city's proceed. I'm thinking, well, this is a well-thought-out plan that the whole group of women, actually now three generations of women and adults, you know, people, men and women, but mostly women, have uh, thought out and have created, and it's a really good plan. I'm, I try to get people, well, let's work on this. This is a proactive, solution-based plan. And so in San Francisco, we're going to have a, a convening, which we do every year, but mm-hmm. it's open to the public, and that's why I wanted to take this opportunity to tell people about it. It's on uh, women's Women's Equality Day, which isn't something I used to know about, but it's August 26th mm-hmm. at the San Francisco African Cultural Center over on the, I forget what the street is, uh, Desidero. but it's from uh, 4 Fulton, to 7 I think. Yeah. on August 26th, and that's open to the public, and that's that same kind of proactive planning. It's the implementation of Cities for CEDAW. We'll be, you know, sharing success stories, because now I think there's over 200 cities in the United States that have adopted the plan. That's great. And internationally, because like I said, you know, when the CEO Wynn went to Geneva and then she was telling him what we're doing in the United States, all these other countries. So there's 20 other countries that are adopting the cities for CEDAW, actually implementing this on a local level, which brings us back to the five people in your neighborhood. Because mm-hmm. you think of what a city can do, a city government can do, but then you think of what can you as a person do. Yes. So that when you're... Um, See, like even you said there were other people watching when that situation was happening where this homeless person was getting arrested. Yeah. What could you have done right then that, that might have had you filled you with more hope rather than just, you know, being really scared? To be honest, my a lot of the things I was thinking about would probably have ended up with me getting arrested or other people being arrested as well. So what would that have been? Actually intervening. It was very – they were talking to this – well, it was one cop first and then another cop came through. And at first it seemed like, you know, we were just – it was like a friend and I were there, and then I think it was like the best way to, to to talk about this. And at first, it were just I was like, walk, you know, watching from a distance, and then other people saw that we were watching, and then they kind of stood by and then watched as well. And it 
the other cop who came by kind of was much more seemed much more aggressive and then he got out his handcuffs very quickly and then uh, like handcuffed the person in such a quick amount of time that I felt like there wasn't time to even act to get in the middle of it before that happened if right. that makes sense yeah and so then that's because I think of those social things that we're going through they see and that's why I'm talking about natural disasters because they seem to be very similar to each other mm-hmm. that one happens unexpectedly very quickly yes and so you have to already have a plan in place. Yeah. And so if you're in a calm and safe place now, what would be a proactive plan? And to me, again, that ACLU app on your phone. Yes. And then just to take it out and start filming it and mm-hmm. then make sure it's getting recorded to ACLU. But if you're told to put down your phone, I think a lot of people pretend they put down their phone. They take it away from the front of the face and they're just holding their hand by the side of their body yeah. and then just still filming it. Mm-hmm. But to stay back at a safe distance so that you're not intervening, yeah. except to be the witness. Yes. Amnesty International, and um, actually in psychology, you know, there's a, a woman um, who transformed the way Western psychology works. Is, it's called the sincere witness, like for situations of child abuse, mm-hmm. that a lot of times, you know, she had spent, uh, she was a Freudian psychologist in Germany, Alice Walker, and then she... Um, studied, well, if there were certain kids that were in abused situations and violent home situations, that they grew up to be helping people. Other people grew up to have mental disorders or to be, be abusers, mm-hmm. they became the victim or the abuser. Yes. And But she studied, who are these children who grow up to be healthy? Yes. And the single uh, continuous factor in all those cases was they had a sincere witness. Mm. Somebody in their life that was watching what was happening to them, who cared for them, and in some way, either through role modeling or just emotional support, told the child, it doesn't have to be like this. There's yeah. other ways for you to be. Or that they brought the child into their home or into their school or into their rec program and made them feel worthy and mm. said, you know, you're a good person. Uh, this, this, You can behave differently than this. You know, they were actually teaching them nonviolent ways to behave. Because mm. I believe that... You know, in violent situations, the only answer is a, you know, is a calm, nonviolent response. Whether it's a natural disaster like an earthquake, what happens, you know, when the earthquake, you know, when it's happening, you have to be really still. And that's, I've talked to a lot of people because most people get hurt because they're trying to leave the building or they're trying to run to their children's room or just in a panic, they get up and start running around. Which really, the most important thing is stay really still mm. until it stops shaking. Mm. And then you, have, and, but you can, while things are shaking, look to see is something about to fall on you yes. and move or get in a situation where you'll be protected, uh, which actually is the side of your bed, you know. I was in my bed, so I just stayed in my bed and counted, mm-hmm. and I was looking out the window, and that's when I saw the white flashes. And when I was asking people, did you see the white flashes, people who didn't were just busy screaming or running around screaming, and they had their eyes closed. And those are the same people who got hurt. Yeah. Because they ran into a wall. This yeah. one woman had run into a kitchen and her refrigerator fell on her. Oof. And, and so those are kind of the things. So, so I think, again, that social disorder is very similar to a, a flash flood or an earthquake. It comes on suddenly. Mm-hmm. It's actually of short duration. And so during the time of the shaking, you have to stay very calm and still. Yeah. And then just be that sincere witness. Yes. You know, to write down the time and place, too. Maybe you don't want to go up and get the police officer's badge numbers because that can be very intimidating. And I've been in a lot of situations like that. I don't know if you remember, but I've traveled into war zones and stuff. Yes. And that whole thing of being unarmed and a sincere witness, but then you record the date, the time, the place. Mm -hmm. 
and perhaps the license plates of the police cars if you can't see their badge numbers. Mm -hmm. But I've done the same thing in this community. There's a big migrant population, and even 10 and 20 years ago, you know, I was showing my kids that, you know, the police haven't, you know, are, you know, arresting and abusing people of color Mm -hmm. more than anybody else. Yes. So if I ever saw a situation like that, I would always be, be a witness. Yes. I would stop. And watch, and then, and this was as a female, you know, as a, now I'm an older woman, at that time I was young, but I would stay at a safe distance and watch, and then I noticed when other people would see me watching, they too would watch. Yes. And a lot of times I would just stand up to watch. If I'd been sitting in a park or something and saw something, I would just stand up and watch. Yeah. If I was in a car, I would stop my car and just watch from my car, but in a place where the police officer could see, I'm in the car, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and so, and watching. And I was in a situation a long time ago, because when I was younger, I was, of course, a very wild child. And so I think I was about 17 or 18, and I was hitchhiking in Orange County, and it was illegal to hitchhike. And um, Oh, it was illegal to hitchhike? It used to be in Orange oh. County. And so I was being stopped and harassed. And so this policeman had stopped me and was questioning me, and then another police car came. So I was a 17-year-old girl by myself. And I had two policemen sort of coming to sort of say, what are you doing? And, well, you know, you're not supposed to do this. I said, well, I was, busy. I was on my way walking to there was a sign that was the, sea, the Seal Beach city limits and outside of the city limits. I could hitchhike. But what happened at that time was a van pulled over. Mm-hmm. And the guy got out of his van and stood by his van. And the policeman started saying, who's that person? I said, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then they said, is that a friend of yours? Is that who you were meeting? And I said, no. Did you call somebody? And that was before cell phones. I said, no. But he just waited there and stayed apart. But then that harassing attitude that they were taking, they suddenly just stopped and got in their cars and said, you have to walk to that sign and don't hitchhike him down again. And I'm like, okay, thank you. And then I just walked. But the guy stayed there waiting, and he said, uh, are you okay? And I said, yes. He said, oh, were you hitchhiking? I said, I was. He says, can I give you a ride someplace? I said, of course you can. But when we got in the car, he saw what was happening. He immediately knew. And especially then when he saw the second police officer stopping, he thought, these are two adult men. There's this 18-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to stop and watch to see what happens. Yeah. And I think that's really that sincere witness is the most that we can do sometimes. Mm -hmm. But it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think that we say to ourselves, we should have done more. Yes, yeah. But sometimes we can't. Yes, yes. But that witness is a lot, because there's a lot of people who don't stop. Yeah, oh yeah, there's, I mean, it's, I, I, there's unfortunately plenty of instances when one can cop watch, and it's, there's so many times I'll just be there on the sidewalk, and plenty of people walk by as if nothing's happening at all. Right, right. And that's pretty uh, scary. Mm-hmm. But then that's where you can be the witness and that you just, if you bring out your phone or just write it down, write mm-hmm. it down afterwards. And just like you did, you post it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people responded. But that, that gets into that community, what can we do? Right, right. We have to do something. And that being that sincere witness, that's the difference of a person getting trapped in being a victim or becoming an abuser to being a functional, healthy, helping an adult. Yes. Is the sincere witness. And I know that I experienced that when I was young, and that always changed me, Mm. that incident. You know, it was something that could have gone ugly. It was starting to kind of go that way, and then it stopped. When that person stopped, and they they were far enough away that they couldn't have been, they weren't intruding, they couldn't hear what the officers were saying. But then with that one van stopped, and then the fact that he came out and stood beside his van to show the officers, I'm watching you. Yes. But other cars started slowing down to watch, too. Yeah. 
Whereas otherwise, they would have just kept driving by. So then it's the community. And I know that one time in the park when I stopped to watch this guy being arrested uh, and harassed, I think that it de-escalated. And then when the officer, it was a single officer, he started realizing that people were coming out of their homes, that people that were in the parks, that they all stopped what they were doing, and they stood up. They saw me stand up to watch them. Then they stood up to watch. Mm -hmm. So there was a group of people at a safe distance standing and watching, and that's that witness thing. Yeah. Uh, then whatever happens, it's going to be witnessed. Yes. And that starts to, that's the beginning of the change. Then the next change is that, you know, because if we're really policing ourselves, you know, because I actually appreciate the police, and I've had a lot of good experiences with them in situations where I was in danger or at risk. I traveled into war zones, and a lot of times we were traveling with the army you know they were traveling with us to keep us safe and i remember this one woman because in this country we don't know what militarized zones are, are unless we've been in a military situation mm -hmm. uh but when every time we stopped these guys would all get out with their machine guns and surround us facing out and this one woman was saying what are these guys doing i said well they're being a deterrent mm. and she goes what do you mean a deterrent and i said well they're deterring people from harming us and she goes well what do you mean they're deterring I said, well, you know, most people wouldn't come up to six guys with machine guns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she says, you mean if somebody did come running out of the bush that they would shoot him? And I said, mm, I think that's probably the plan. Mm. And she got really nervous, and I thought, we're coming into a war zone. What were you thinking? Yeah. I said, I myself, I'm okay with them being there. I think that they're going to deter people, and we're going to be fine. Yeah. And we did. We didn't have any situation, but... Uh, I always say, you know, history's depending on which side of the gun you're on. You know, mm. if, you have, if you're in an abusive situation with a, you know, a partner, a husband, a wife or something, um, and the police come and they calm that person down and take them away, then that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, so mostly the police do work as deterrents, and, and in, in really in most situations they do keep us safer. And so then I think by citizens watching and helping, it can go both ways, that we actually can be helping the police, too. Mm. That if a crime is occurring, if a person, a wife or a husband or a friend or two homeless people are beating each other up, that same thing kicks in, that you sit there and you watch. Mm -hmm. You be a witness. You write down what you saw. Mm -hmm. I saw this person jump this person, and that person jump that person. Just a second. Uh, and so I think that that same thing of watching and being the witness and having that plan to be the witness, those other people that you stopped with, if you just maybe took their names, yeah, yeah. you all collectively wrote down what you saw, the date, the time, the place, mm -hmm. and you just document that. Mm -hmm. And then start thinking maybe then within your community, like I know a lot of people are living in Oakland now, a lot of people have been pushed out of San mm -hmm. Francisco. And then there's, because this, the communities are, are less safe and a little bit more violent, that then they're setting up those safety nets within the community where they're living. Yeah. That you watch and you wait. And I know, like, in my community, if there's a sound of a gunshot or even a police chase or anything, people are they're on email, they're on social media, or they come out of their houses to watch mm -hmm. and then talk to each other. What happened? Yeah. What can we do? Do we need to react? Is this okay? You know, we just make a decision from there. Mm -hmm. Please don't take this call. And so I think that that's, you know, those are proactive things that we can do. Yeah. And so then when we're doing that, when we're working, you know, politically to get our city that we live in to, you know, sign on to something like the human rights protections for our, our people, the people that are vulnerable in the community, then um, that's helping us to do that. Mm.
you know, it's helping to change the community. Yeah. Because then when people are safe, the reason we're safe, you know, we're not safe if we're not safe in our home. We're not safe if we're, uh, you know, if we're not safe in our home, if we're not safe in our streets, we don't have human rights. And I Mm -hmm. think most people don't see that. Yes, yes. They think of human rights as torture over there somewhere. Yeah, I think a lot of it's very insidious and also very much also under the I mean under under the surface and also if people think if it doesn't happen if it's not if it's not happening to me or my family then I shouldn't care about it and I right. think that the conversation needs to expand to recognize that even if it's not happening to you it's still important to speak up about it right exactly and I think that then that's that's what changes it because then there's that other thing too that the only reason that bad things can happen is because good people do nothing mm-hmm. and so then we can always think about well what could I have done just like any situation you're in just like the, the situation you were in, you know, to talk about it. Yes. What could I have done? Yes. What did I feel like doing? What did I do? Yes, yes. And what might I do next time? Mm-hmm. And then a lot of times what you can do is just, you know, send a letter to the press or to the police officer. I know, again, we're in a small town, so it's easier here mm-hmm. than in a big city. But, you know, I know the all my county supervisors, all my city council yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. And so... And so I think those are really important things to do, to say we know that we can make a difference. We know that uh, we can be, uh, and, and, then, and then to do it. Yes. You know, when you yeah. think of the words proactive, mm-hmm. that means that we act before we mm. need to. Mm. You know, my kids, the first time we had a really bad earthquake, they said, wow, nothing fell. And I said, no, that's because we were prepared before. And yeah. they used to laugh at me. They said, well, you're always talking about if there's an earthquake, you know, to bolt the pictures, to bolt the dresser, have all these safety things, don't put glass near your bed or your desk or anything like that. And then they realized, well, nothing happened. I said, well, remember how you were complaining about how I always talk about, well, if there was an earthquake and you thought that was silly, I said, but it wasn't silly. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing happened. Uh, sometimes things will happen in your, you know, if, the, if you're right on the epicenter, there's nothing really you could do to prepare except to yeah. stay still while it's happening and then get yourself to a safe place as soon as it stops shaking. Because mm. I didn't realize that all the earthquake preparedness that we have in California, it's that the building will be safe enough to get out of when the shaking stops. Yes, yes. And I didn't know that. I thought it would be that with the shaking it wouldn't collapse. <laughs> But that's not really what's true, because the earthquake we had, even though it seemed like a light one, and that was about two years ago now, it was a 6.0, but it, it instead of going perpendicular back and forth, it went up and down, mm-hmm. and up and down is really different than back and forth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so there was a lot of damage, a lot of structural damage, a lot of houses fell off their foundations, a couple of houses got split in half, like I said, there was big cracks in the roads telephone poles fell over and broke and there was a lot of fires and you know a lot of that happened mm. and so then what after the shaking you would get yourself out of the out of the house and into a safer place and what a lot of people did which actually was a good idea is they left their houses and just stayed in their cars because it was in the middle of the night yeah and that that was and that they had their safety you know the rubber made with food and water and emergency stuff Mm -hmm. and they took their their bin of what they needed and went into their cars Mm. and then i told them well the next thing you would do is just drive to a higher ground yeah you know know where the rocky places are because san francisco is the same way i think uh knob hill you know there's a couple of places that are rocky uh foundations Mm -hmm. and so in an earthquake they're not going to have the damage that the lower water places like the marina and the you know the coast those places are going to suffer more damage yes 
than say like Noe Valley or Knob Hill. Mm-hmm. So you have that same thing of high ground and rocky ground, and those are good things that the proactive things that you can do. Mm-hmm. Where's the high ground? Where's the stable foundation? Mm-hmm. And so if we're looking at social order, you would create that same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. How do you create that rocky, that stable foundation? Mm. And if you have that stable foundation of friends and neighbors, that's your first range of support. And then, then what are the other, you know, systems yeah. in place? And that you want to have all that planned out. Yes, yes. Because when it happens, you don't have time to think. Right, right. You have to act. Right. And that's what proactive is. You've already thought about it. You already have an action and plan. Mm-hmm. And then you follow it. And, it, you know, I think it's good, you know, like for social order, really what our biggest weapon now is our, our phones, our cameras, you mm-hmm. know. And that's what we did back in the day when uh, women, you know, it still wasn't illegal to rape your wife or to beat a woman. And I know here in Napa, I think this was about 30 years ago, there was a, a person who was uh, raping and beating women. And unfortunately, it was during the harvest time, and the description was they were five, six, brown, black hair, blah, blah, and that happened to be a large part of the population. Yeah. So the police really weren't doing much, and they were telling women, you have to stay inside and don't go out late alone. And, uh, and then we didn't accept that. We thought, yeah. no, we're yeah. not the ones committing the crime. We're right. going to stay inside right. and just go out with people. But we did, we did a whole take back the night thing. Yeah. And, and we went out at night. And this particular situation, we went out. This woman had been attacked at midnight at the post office. So we went to the post office at mm-hmm. midnight and did a candlelight vigil. And a bunch of women went. And, and the woman who actually got attacked, she came. You know, she heard we were coming, and she wanted to come, and she thanked us. And we sat around talking about what we could do. Mm-hmm. She knew who the person was, but because she didn't see him, he'd attacked her from the back and had mm. his mask on. The police couldn't do anything, but it was a small town again. So we just started following him around at that point with yeah. the we just started, you know, saying every place he was, we were there taking pictures of him. Yeah. And he left town. And unfortunately, we realized, well, that just sent the problem someplace else. Really yes. Now there's more that you can do. Yes, yes. But it still does come down to being that witness. And a lot of times the witness is the camera. Mm. You know, to have that validation as far, and then as, as well as time, place, and what is it? Time, place, and what happened. Mm. Mm-hmm. Those are what you need to document uh criminal behavior mm-hmm. and then change and so there's a lot of things i think in a positive way that are changing in the bay area mm-hmm. you know, the whole thing of now with the human trafficking because mm-hmm. i didn't realize it but up to five years ago there was not against the law to sell human beings for you know sex <sighs> that prostitution the only crime and the only person getting arrested in prostitution was the prostitute the sex worker yeah and I was going I mean I've been working on that stuff you know through groups you know uh, globally thinking it's over there and I just assumed that here in the United States and especially in California that it, that, that was a, those oh. were crimes already but they weren't that the person the human trafficker the person selling the humans the person purchasing the humans that they, they there was no criminal offense for them but now there is <laughs> now it's a felony offense. Mm-hmm. So the person purchasing is that's a felony offense. Mm-hmm. The person selling each person that they sell each time that they sell them, that's a criminal offense. So if there's a we would call a pimp out there, and he's got nine prostitutes, and that's each time that person is purchased. Those are nine, ten, twenty uh, felonies. Mm-hmm. So they're now in Alameda County, and then fortunately the Alameda County District Attorney made sure that the state put those laws into place and so that's really shifting the human trafficking situation Mm -hmm. in California Hmm. and that again comes back to a sincere witness 
the district attorney was a woman who's saying, wait, you know, this is like, you know, shooting goldfish in a bucket mm-hmm. with the prostitute. The prostitute isn't the criminal. She's the victim. Right, right. And so that is a huge change that just happened here in California five years ago. Wow. And mm. I had no idea. I just assumed, as did most people, we assumed that that was against the law. Mm-hmm. That you say, oh, yeah, prostitution is a crime. But who was being arrested was the prostitute. Yeah. And so now that's being decriminalized. The prostitute is no longer the criminal. Mm-hmm. The person selling her, the human trafficker, and the purchaser. And so that's escalating a lot of situations because that's a billion-dollar industry. Yes, yes. That people said they wouldn't change, but it is changing. And it's changing because people are making a difference in the town that they live in, mm-hmm. in the neighborhood they live in. So I hope that gives you more hope. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, thank you. And it, I think, and then hopefully that it'll be a plan, you know, that you can, because you have the radio, because you have a large audience on social media, you know, just to to start sharing that stuff. Yes, yes. And hopefully you'll come to our CD, Cities for CEDAW workshop and uh, I'll get that information and, and be posting it on Facebook. Yes, yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. And uh, Yeah, because I think it's something right here and we've done it, but a lot of times what we end up doing, I think in a lot of our circles, we end up preaching to the choir. Yes. So there's a whole group of us that have been working since 1995 since Beijing and Y that we've been within our own minds, but I think, well, now it's really time, especially with the city Cercedo, that really is something that every person can do, mm-hmm. because you can do it in the town where you live in. You can think, well, what would I do with my four friends mm-hmm. to help further this? And yeah. it might just be one aspect, even if it's, you know, taking care of stray dogs, which it seems like that's a small thing, but you realize we don't have stray dogs anymore, because everybody took care of that. You go to countries where they don't have... Uh, animal protection things and the animals are being terribly abused but whatever small step it is being a witness to a child you know being helping in a the local elementary school you know doing literacy uh, training at the library there's all kinds of ways that you can help people to develop tools that further their life because uh, one of the human rights is literacy is access to education mm-hmm. and like i said people think of human rights as being tortured someplace over there and you realize no it's about access to education, access to safety in your home, in your street, in your workplace, Mm -hmm. access to economic development, access to the media, access to, you know, it's, it's, there's the 12 points. It really is everything that encompasses our day-to-day life, access to clean water, Mm -hmm. access to shelter, to food. And I think right now, especially in California, especially in the Bay Area, but that includes Napa too in the Bay Area, is access to housing. Our housing is just getting so commercialized that it's, it's become unaffordable. And you realize how would a community look if everybody that lived and worked there had access to housing? Mm-hmm. It would look a little different than it does now. And that's for us to come up with plans, you know, that you you we would follow. Well, what's your, what's the area that you feel called to work on? Mm-hmm. And then really, if everybody, you know, just like that that idealized the solution that you offered right when I said, what is your vision? Which I agree with that. But a self-sufficient, self-helping community, then people would be policing themselves. People would be policing their own neighborhoods. And a lot of countries, I knew where I grew up in New Mexico, I I grew up in what was semi-rural Albuquerque, Mm -hmm. that the police, there really weren't police. And so people did police themselves. I have a childhood memory of people policing themselves. Yes. And it wasn't anarchy. You know, people mostly were really taking care of themselves and their families, growing their food, providing their water, and then making sure that their neighbors and uh, relatives had food and water, too. Mm-hmm. And then if the situation got out of control, everybody took care of it. Mm. You know, people had to behave. 
they weren't allowed to just run amok. And that wasn't how it was, you know, in the indigenous world. And places, countries that I've traveled to with the indigenous populations are still intact. It's not chaotic. It's safe. It's wonderful. And it's very celebratory. Yeah. Human beings, given the opportunity, really like to come together and yes. dance and party and uh, do art. Yes. You know, that's really what we choose to do. In San Francisco, even though it can seem like people are isolated, really, compared to a lot of cities, they party in the streets more than most cities. <laughs> yes, yeah, I agree And I with think that. that that is that celebration of life. That is a human right, you know, that, that we do gather. And when we're out there gathered, that we're keeping each other safe and we're sharing food. And a lot of times there's a sharing of clothing. And I know that indigenous communities, part of that celebration is making sure that everybody's fed. Mm-hmm. Because then it's a potluck. What does everybody do? They bring food. They bring yes. water. Yes. And then if you're having some kind of big celebration every day or every other day, like in some parts of India and Mexico, they actually do have celebrations that often, then really everybody's getting fed. Mm-hmm. And people can say, oh, they're just partying. But you're like, no, they're making sure that everybody has food and water and clothing. Mm-hmm. Because the other part of being at a big party is you're giving gifts. Yes. And gifts are usually, you know, clothing, scarves, skirts. <laughs> So Roman, I appreciate the opportunity to talk. I know I didn't expect to talk the whole hour, but oh, it's it's really good hearing from you, and I appreciate what you've shared. And hopefully, it'll it'll help lift you up. You know, yes. I just felt like to reach out to you because I felt like, oh no, here's one more person getting hopeless. And I think that sometimes we, as individuals, and you, you can think, oh, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless, and you're thinking, no, you're not. Yeah. And you're actually a public person because of your radio show and because of your presence in social. So it's really important for us as community leaders to stay hopeful mm-hmm. and to inspire people. Yes, yes. Rather than uh, for us to just get in a mass panic. Yes, yeah. And I think that I know I've been in situations where they say one person, one calm person can save a boat that's sinking. Hmm. And I've been in a situation, you know, when I was traveling through Western Europe again in my young wild years, um, where the boat was hitting a really bad storm. And unfortunately, the week before that same ferry boat between Brindisi, I think it was between someplace in Italy to someplace in Greece, Brindisi, and I forgot the Athens port. Um, but that the ship had gone down, and the only people that were saved were the captain and the crew. And so a week later, we're on that same ferry line, you know, across the sea, the Adriatic Sea, and we were hitting a really bad storm, and it was waves were breaking over the top of the boat, and we were in deck class, so that had a little more impact than in cabin class. But somebody had stood up and said, I was about singing, the captain and the crew were probably already gone, and everybody started just freak out and I just stood up and again that was when I was young so I was 20 years old and I'm five foot one so I was but I just said shut the fuck up you know? <laughs> and there was a guy behind me who had a guitar I said you get out your guitar and you start singing and he's like so he was filming with his guitar and then I was telling everybody calm down because there was no place for us to go when people stood up and they started screaming and running around they were just bumping and pushing each other it's like well where are you going to go mm-hmm. off the boat into the ocean yeah I said, I don't think the boat's sinking, and we're just fine, you know, and just, everybody just needs to sit down and calm down, and when I did that, everybody did calm down, and the guy who had been yelling, and some big guy was just yelling really loud, and I told him, shut the fuck up, <laughs> which he did, Yeah. and then the guy did take out his guitar, and he started tuning it, and I said, just start playing, and he said, what do I play? I said, anything, but then he played all night. And he kept everybody calm all night. Mm. And so in the morning we got to shore and people uh, were all thanking him. Mm-hmm. But then he said was everybody was going because we were just there as a group of people. I don't know, there's maybe a hundred of us that were disembarking. And then they said, um, 
you know, he said to me at the end of that, wow, uh, you, people are thanking me, but they really should be thanking you. And I said, you know what, it doesn't matter. Yeah. We were a team, and it, had he not started playing, he was the one who calmed everybody down. Mm. But I was the one who had the idea. So I, I always think there's that one person. If one person stays calm, it can keep everybody else calm. I love that idea. So just think of that. Just think of yes. that you're that one person. Yes. And if all of us think of it that, that we have to step up, we have to be the sincere witness, we have to take action. And that if we don't do the best thing, then we think of, we come up with a plan, what would we do next time? What would we do in that situation again? Mm-hmm. And then just like I'm doing, you know, situations where you did behave well, sharing those. Yes, yes. Because I think people, because we are isolated and mostly watching, you know, the virtual world and TVs and video games, we forget that, no, the physical human has to act and be and watch and do. Yes. And so when we share those stories, no, a regular person can make a difference. Yes. So I thank you for what you're doing, and, and um, you know, give me a, a flash, and I'll come on your show anytime. Thank you. It'd be wonderful. Thanks again. I really, It's really good to hear from you. Okay, you too, Roman. All right. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Uh, thanks again to Charlie Toledo for calling in. And again, the, the CEDAW briefing will be happening on August 26th at the African American Cultural Center, and that's in the Fillmore District, and that'll be from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m., and we'll be talking more about that and giving folks a reminder as that approaches. Thanks again to Charlie for calling in. Very inspirational and really good just to have this, yeah, the, the idea of being proactive, of preparing, of speaking up, of also being calm in situations that uh, almost demand that we not be calm and seek to set us off and to make it difficult to to be calm and to be centered and to take out take care of each of that to take care of each other so thanks again so much for for calling in we're taking a bit of a music break and then we'll be getting into some more news stories after this as mentioned uh here's a this is a live version of the song heroin by lou reed and uh we'll be back after this
gonna try for the kingdom if I can. Cause it makes me feel like I'm a man When I put a spike into my vein Then things aren't quite the same When I'm rushing on my run Just like Jesus' son And a kiss that I just don't know And I guess that I just don't know Chopper's neck When I'm closing in on death I'll boot me mama When I'm closing in on death Ooh, you can't help me Hey, hey, not you guys Oh, babe, all you girls That all you sweet, pretty talk Go take a walk And I guess I just don't know And I guess that I just don't know 
was born a thousand years ago
everybody putting everybody else down And all the politicians make a crazy sound And all the dead bodies piled up in them Welcome back to the Weekly Review. That was Lou Reed with Heroin. The song originally came out in 67. So again, we're on the sevens this year. The first song we played is from 97. This one, although it's a live version, originally came out in 1967. Something about sevens. In addition to fives, thinking about the conversation we had with, with Charlie Toledo, who just called in. Interesting to find patterns. So, as promised, although I didn't necessarily promise anything, (laughs) there's an article I wanted to get to, and this came out in The Atlantic, and this was from the July-August issue of this year. Power causes brain damage. And perhaps we can send this to a lot of folks in positions of power, because we're seeing a lot of this as well. And this goes back to the conversation we're having earlier, where it's really about community and lack of hierarchy, and if everyone's taking care of each other without a hierarchical standard uh, things might be a little bit more fair and just just a, a a thought perhaps that can happen power causes brain damage how leaders lose mental capacities most notably for reading other people that were essential to their rise and this was written by jerry Useem. and again this came out in the july august 2017 issue of the atlantic if power ray prescription drug It would come with a long list of known side effects. It can intoxicate. It can corrupt. It can even make Henry Kissinger believe that he's sexually magnetic. But it can cause brain. But can it cause brain damage? When various lawmakers lit into John Stumpf at a congressional hearing last fall, each seemed to find a fresh way to flay the now former CEO of Wells Fargo for failing to stop some 5,000 employees from setting up phony accounts for customers. But it was Stump's performance that stood out. Here was a man who had risen to the top of the world's most valuable bank, yet he seemed utterly unable to read a room. Although he apologized, he didn't appear chastened or remorseful, nor did he seem defiant or smug or even insincere. He looked disoriented, like a jet-lagged space traveler just arrived from planet Stumpf, where deference to him is a natural law and 5,000 a commendably small number. Even the most direct barbs, you have got to be kidding me, Sean Duffy of, of Wisconsin, I can't believe some of what I'm hearing here, Gregory Meeks of New York, failed to shake him awake. What was going through Stump's head? New research suggests that the better question may be, what wasn't going through it? 
The historian Henry Adams was being metaphorical, not medical, when he described power as a sort of tumor that ends by killing the victim's sympathies. But that's not far from where Dr. Keltner, a psychology professor at UC Berkeley, ended up after years of lab and field experiments. Subjects under the influence of power, he found in studies spanning two decades, acted as if they had suffered a traumatic brain injury, becoming more impulsive, less less risk-aware, and crucially, less adept, adept at seeing things from other people's point of view. Sukhvinder Opie, a, new, a neuroscientist at McMaster University in Ontario, recently described something similar. Unlike Keltner, who studies behaviors, Opie studies brains. Obi studies brains. When he put the the heads of the powerful and not the not so powerful under a transcranial magnetic stimulation machine. It's an awesome sounding machine. He found that power, in fact, impairs a specific neural process, mirroring, that may be a cornerstone of empathy, which gives a neurological basis to what Keltner has termed the power paradox. Once we have power, we lose some of the capacities we needed to gain it in the first place. What loss in capacity has been demonstrated in various creative ways? That loss. <laughs> that loss in capacity has been demonstrated in various creative ways. A 2006 study asked participants to draw the letter E on their forehead for others to view, a task that requires seeing yourself from an observer's vantage point. Those feeling powerful were three times more likely to draw the E the right way to themselves and backwards to everyone else which calls to mind George W. Bush, who memorably held up the American flag backwards at the 2008 Olympics. Other experiments have shown that powerful people do worse at identifying what someone in a picture is feeling or guessing how a colleague might interpret a remark. The fact that people tend to mimic the expressions and body language of their superiors can aggravate the, this problem. Subordinates provide few reliable cues to the powerful, but more important, Keltner says, is the fact that the powerful stop mimicking others. Laughing when others laugh or tensing when others tense does more than in ingratiate. It helps trigger the same feelings those others are experiencing and provides a window into where they are coming from. Powerful people stop stim simulating the experience of others, Keltner says, which leads to what he calls an empathy deficit. Mm. Mirroring is a sub subtler, subtler kind of mimicry that goes on entirely within our heads and without our awareness. When we watch someone perform an action, the part of the brain we would use to do that same thing lights up in sympathetic response. It might be best understood as vicarious experience. It's what OP and his team were trying to activate when they had their subjects watch a video of someone's hand squeezing a rubber ball. For non-powerful participants, mirroring worked fine. The neural pathways they would use to squeeze the ball them themselves fired strongly but the powerful groups, less so. Was the mirroring response broken? More like anesthetized. None of the participants possessed permanent power. They were, they were college students who had been primed to feel potent by recounting an experience in which they had been in charge. The anesthetic would presumably wear off when the feeling did. Their brains weren't structurally damaged after an afternoon in the lab. But in the effect, but the, but if the effect had been long-lasting, say, 
by dint of having Wall Street analysts whispering their greatness quarter after quarter, board members offering them extra helpings of pay, and Forbes praising them for doing well while doing good, they may have what in medicine is known as functional changes to the brain. I wonder whether the powerful might simply stop trying to put themselves in others' shoes without losing the ability to do so. As it happened, OB ran a subsequent study that may help answer that question. This time, subjects were told that mirroring was and asked was <laughs> what told what mirroring was and asked to make a conscious effort to increase or decrease their response. Our results, he said, he and his co-author Catherine Nash wrote, showed no difference. Effort didn't help. This is a depressing finding. Knowledge is supposed to be power, but what good is knowing that that power deprives you of knowledge? The sunniest possible spin, it seems, is that these changes are only sometimes harmful. Power, the research says, primes our brain to screen out peripheral information. In most situations, this provides a helpful efficiency boost. In social ones, it has the unfortunate side effect of making us more obtuse. Even that is not necessarily bad for the prospects of the powerful or the groups they lead. As Susan Fisk, a Princeton psychology professor, has persuasively argued, power lessens the need for a nuanced read of people, since it gives us command of resources we once had to cajole from others. But of course, in a modern organization, the maintenance of that command relies on some level of organizational support. And the sheer number of examples of executive hubris that bristle from the headlines suggests that many leaders cross the line into counterproductive folly. Less able to make out people's individuating traits, they rely more heavily on stereotype. And the less they're able to see, other research suggests, the more they rely on a personal vision for navigation. John Stumpf saw a Wells Fargo where every customer had eight separate accounts. As he'd often noted to employees, eight rhymes with great. Cross-selling, he told Congress, is shorthand for deepening relationships. Is there nothing to be done? No and yes. It's difficult to stop power's tendency to affect your brain. What's easier, from time to time at least, is to stop feeling powerful. Insofar as it affects the way we think, power, Keltner reminded me, is not a post or a position, but a mental state. Recount a time you did not feel powerful, his experiment suggests, and your brain can commune with reality. Recalling an early experience of powerlessness seems to work for some people and experiences that were searing enough may provide a sort of permanent protection. An incredible study published in the Journal of Finance last February found that CEOs who, as children, had lived through a natural disaster that produced significant fatalities were much less risk-seeking than CEOs who hadn't. The one problem, says Reghavandra Rao, a co-author of the study and a Cambridge University professor, is that CEOs who had lived through disasters without significant fatalities were more risk-taking. But tornadoes, volcanoes, and tsunamis aren't the only hubris-restraining forces out there. PepsiCo CEO and chairman Indra Nooyi sometimes tells the story of the day she got the news of her appointment to the co- company's board. In 2001, in 2001, she arrived home uh, percolating in her own sense of importance and vitality, and when her mother asked, uh, asked whether before she had delivered her great news, uh, she would go out and get some milk. Oh, before she delivered her great news, she would go out and get some milk. Fuming, Nui went out and got it. Leave that damn crown in the garage, was her mother's advice when she returned. 
The point of the story, really, is that Nui tells it. It serves as a useful reminder about ordinary obligation and the need to stay grounded. Nui's mother in the story serves as a toe holder, a term once used by the political advisor Louis Howe to describe his relationship with the four-term president Franklin D. Roosevelt, whom Howe never stopped calling Franklin. For Winston Churchill, the person who filled the role was his wife, Clementine, who had the courage to write, My darling Winston, I must confess that I have noticed a deterioration in your manner, and you are not as kind as you used to be. Written on the day Hitler entered Paris, torn up and sent away, the letter was not a complaint but an alert. Someone had confided to her, she wrote, that Churchill had been acting so contemptuous towards subordinates in meetings that no ideas, good or bad, will be forthcoming, with the attendant danger that you won't get the best results. Lord David Owen, a British neurologist turned parliamentarian who served as the foreign secretary before coming a baron, recounts both Howe's story and Clementine Churchill's in his 2008 book In Sickness and in Power, an inquiry into the various maladies that had affected the performance of British prime ministers and American presidents since 1900. While some suffered from strokes, Woodrow Wilson, substance abuse, Anthony Eden, or possibly bipolar disorder, LBJ, Theodore Roosevelt, at least four others acquired a disorder that the medical literature doesn't recognize, but Owen argues should. Hubris syndrome, he and a co-author Jonathan Davidson defined it in a 2009 article published in Brain, is a disorder of the possession of power, particularly power that has been associated with overwhelming success held for a period of years and with minimal constraint on the leader. Its 14 clinical features include manifest contempt for others, loss of contact with reality, restless or reckless actions, displays of incompetence, and displays of incompetence. In May, the Royal Society of Medicine co-hosted a conference of the Daedalus Trust, an organization that Owen founded for the study and prevention of hubris. I asked Owen, who admits to a healthy predisposition of hubris himself, whether anything helps keep him tethered to reality, something that other truly powerful figures might emulate. He shared a few strategies, thinking back on hubris-dispelling episodes from his past, watching documentaries about ordinary people, (laughs) making a habit of reading constituents' letters. But I surmise that the greatest check on Owen's hubris today might stem from his recent research endeavors. Business, he complained to me, had shown next to no appetite for research on hubris. Business schools were not much better. The undercurrent of frustration in his voice attested to a certain powerlessness. Whatever the statutory effect on Owen, it suggests that a malady seen too commonly in boardrooms and executive suites is unlikely to soon find a cure. Ooh. So... That is some food for thought. And again, you can find the entire article on The Atlantic, and that was in their July-August 2017 issue, and the article was written by Jerry Usim. So you can check that out there. We also have had this posted on our Facebook webpage. You can go to facebook.com slash weeklyrev. Coming up next is a song. I came on randomly recently, and uh, some of the lines in it, lyrics, definitely hit home, and they also relate to that story we just read. So I think a lot of folks know this song. Uh, I'm going to play this, and then we'll be back with some more news. One, two. 
And welcome back. That was Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, of course, with Badlands. Poor men want to be rich. Rich men want to be king. And the king ain't satisfied until he rules everything. So I think that's that kind of goes in well with what we've been talking about a bit today, within the last article in particular. So we're running a little bit low on time here, so we will get to what we can. Uh, Women's Magazine and Common Thread Collective are off this week, but do stay tuned. We've got some more shows coming up at Mutiny Radio. If you would like a show here, check out mutinyradio.fm. We have a lot of open slots. And also we are raising funds here to keep the station open. We we survive with by by listeners like you, right? So we have a we have a GoFundMe, I believe, that's up if you go to mutinyradio.fm. Again, and also we're looking for sponsors here on the weekly review. If you like what you hear, if you don't like what you hear, but it challenges you, maybe, feel free to consider being a sponsor. Big thank you to all the folks who do sponsor the show, Praveen, uh, Michael, and Ritual Cannabis, Kim, Jake, Kristen, a lot of good folks, uh, Blythe. I always mean to write down all the folks who sponsor the show. And uh, Janice, thank you. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thanks, folks, for sponsoring the show. And if you would like to also uh, sponsor the show, again, check out patreon.com slash weekly rev. So coming up, we got a few more news stories, and then we'll be uh, playing some music afterwards. Lots here. Uh, so some, oh, not, uh, we'll, we'll end on a positive, well, I don't know if it's really that positive of a news story, but we'll get there. So first off, uh, Berkeley capitulates to police militarization and spying, and this is an article by Dave Welsh. And you can find this at secure.campaigner.com. Uh, in Berkeley, California, some 400 people packed a special city council meeting here on June 20th to demand that the city end its shameful collaboration with federal police and spy agencies. But the council, while widely hailed as quote-unquote progressive, ignored the near-unanimous popular opinion and voted to renew three controversial police programs. One, city participation in a regional intelligence fusion center and its suspicious activities domestic spying operation, coordinated nationally by the FBI and used locally to spy on Black Lives Matter demonstrations. Two, city participation in the Urban Areas Security Initiative and its annual $5 million Urban Shield Weapons and SWAT Team Training Expo aimed at militarizing and increasing federal control over local police forces under Homeland Security. UASI promotes the model of of the quote-unquote warrior cop, bad news. And three, the city's acquisition of a a $205,000 bulletproof armored personnel carrier partly funded by DHS, presumably anticipating some future wave of civil unrest in this small city. The Longfellow Middle School Auditorium was filled to overflowing in this third marathon city council debate on the subject, this one lasting nearly seven hours as people lined up at the mic to ask the city to take to make a clean break from these potentially dangerous police programs. Local educator Steve Martinote summed it up, These young people came and spoke beautifully and eloquently about what it is like to face the horrors of police impunity and militarization. Speaker after speaker warned against the police state. 
Beloved ex-mayor berates city council for caving into the police. Former Mayor Gus Newport scolded the city council for going along with the various schemes for further empowering the police. I cut my teeth in the civil rights movement by being getting brutalized by police at the age of 11, he said. I would hope that you all have the principles, the heart, and the concern for the people of Berkeley to make sure these police programs do not go any further. Many spoke of the racist impacts of the, these federal police programs. Sharif Sakut, Sakout with the Arab Resource and Organizing Center said, I want to be absolutely clear that Urban Shield was developed in response to 9-11 and the Patriot Act and is an Islamophobic and racist program. Iraq is part of a broad stop Urban Shield coalition whose mobilization succeeded in driving the racist program out of Oakland in 2015. That was the year when Black Rifles Matter was the most popular t-shirt sold at the Urban Shield Police Expo. Berkeley resident James McFadden said the Intelligence Fusion Center and UASI are part of a continuous effort to consolidate federal control over local police. That escalated after 9-11 with the passage of the Patriot Act and creation of Homeland Security. He said Berkeley, for example, should not be collecting data that can help ICE round up immigrants and immigrants for deportation. We don't need a militarized surveillance state, or if unrest grows, a police occupation force as we saw in Ferguson, Missouri, he added. A young woman from the Filipino youth, youth organization, Anak Bayan, urged rejection of the police programs, commenting, as Berkeley gentrifies, police brutality increases. When the council withdrew for rest breaks along during the meeting, during the long meeting, Stop Urban Shield organizers used these occasions to do mic checks, leading chants and updating the large audience on some confusing agenda changes decreed by the mayor. A postal worker said, Why is Berkeley cooperating with the FBI, with its long and grim history of suppressing dissent, busting unions, conducting political witch hunts, disrupting the civil rights and black liberation movements and the American Indian movement, including spying on, assassinating, and imprisoning their, imprisoning their leaders? Do we really want to be part of a national police network headed by America's top cop, the arch-racist Attorney General Jeff Sessions? Now is the time to draw the line. The new mayor, Jesse Arguin, 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 a Democrat elected with the endorsement of Bernie Sanders, voted to continue Berkeley's participation in UASI and Urban Shield, although he did vote to pull out of the Intelligence Fusion Center. After the vote, city resident Mark Sapir was inspired to write an angry open letter to a longtime council member with a certified progressive reputation who nevertheless could not bring himself to oppose the police on these issues. The reason why the Democratic Party cannot pull out of its tailspin is because of because its duplicity, like yours, is just as real and just as transparent as that of the Republicans, said the open letter. Sapir chastised the council for failing to subordinate policing power to popular will. Not everyone on the city council caved into the police, however. Newly elected council member Cheryl Davila, an African-American woman, was steadfast in opposing all three of the pro-police measures, with support from city council member Kate Harrison. This was not appreciated by the mayor, who rudely cut Cheryl off three times during the meeting. But the soft-spoken Davila persisted, calling on her colleagues to show some courage and stressing the need to be a fearless city by ending participation in the federal police programs. We are a sanctuary city, she said. We have to protect every one of our people. When the votes were announced, many in the audience rushed the stage and raised a banner opposing police militarization. Most council members promptly scurried away. Police officers responded violently, 
arresting two young protesters, manhandling others, and using their batons to bloody several heads, apparently including that of a 73-year-old man. Cheryl Davila, who had remained in the auditorium, was overheard commenting to the police, you don't have to break their arms. Fuck! So, I know the idea is to be calm, uh, and also we just need to recognize this is what's happening. When people do speak out, this is what happens. All right, we're coming to the end of the show. I'm going to go over some headlines, and you can read the articles. Again, they're on, if you go to facebook.com slash weeklyrev, post these articles regularly, you can read them in full. From the Village Voice, NYPD promises to finally follow freedom of information law. And that was written by Nick Pinto, and that came out on June 29th. That's one article. Another one, activists in wheelchairs have spent more than two straight days in Senator Gardner's office. And that was um, from Vox. If you go to vox.com, it was written by Jeff Stein. And that also came out on June 29th. (sighs) Also, businessinsider.com, an article by Alex Heath from June 28th. Facebook's leaked rules on censoring hate speech protect white men, but not black children. And they give a few examples here in the article, one of which is that uh, 45 has a 2016 Facebook post about barring Muslims from entering the, the U.S., which violated Facebook's internal rules on hate speech. But Mark Zuckerberg personally intervened to keep the post from being deleted. Ah! Gross. All right. Next, from the East Bay Express, June 29th, uh, an article written by Darwin Bongram and Allie Winston, New Oakland Police Sexual Misconduct Case Leads to Discovery of Drugs Stashed in Locker. You can imagine what that's about, and you can check out the full article there. Uh, Mission Local, sweep report, dozens placed in shelter, others turned away in 16th Street Encampment Clearing. And this was written by Laura Waxman, also from June 29th. And so there's a new... um, there's a, oh, this is a different one, but there's a Mission Navigation Center at 1915, at 1950 Mission. Um, okay, so some 40 people accepted placement in the Mission's Navigation Center at 1950 Mission Street after a large-scale encampment at 16th Street and San Bruno Avenue was removed by the city Thursday morning. Now, asking people to move and not giving them a place to go is pretty problematic. Um, and it says that there is... Uh, three young women who one had been on the street for 15 years who were turned away because they were part of another encampment. And we're also hearing that there's another quote-unquote navigation center that's up on South Van Ness uh, and 26th, I believe. And an issue that's coming up with that one is that there's heavy police presence there. So, um, I wish I had some positive news stories. And positive news stories are people are acting up and it's also just crucial to get these these words out there. Oh, here's something positive, right? Uh, low bars, I guess. We have a low bar. We have a low bar. Uh, and it's, yeah, important to, to talk about what's happening. From Think Progress, in surprising rebuke to Trump, leave it to the fucking GOP, who I believe are a hate group, GOP committee votes to repeal authorization for use of military force. The authorization has been in place since 2001. And uh, I'll just read this quickly. Three days after September 11th, 2001, Representative Barbara Lee from California became the only member of both houses of Congress to vote against the authorized use of military force legislation that authorized use of military force following the 9-11 attacks. Lee did not oppose military action, but was concerned about how the broad language would be interpreted in the years to follow. 
Lee cautioned they should be careful not to embark on an open-ended war with neither an exit strategy nor a focused target. The 60 words that compromise the AUMF have since been used to justify at least 37 military operations in 14 countries, including not just the war in Iraq, but also the war but also the fight against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. These operations were allowed due to the broad language Rep. Lee cautioned against. And Representative Lee's words, that the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future attacks of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. On Thursday, the House Appropriations Committee adopted Rep. Lee's amendment that would repeal the AUMF after the passage of the Defense Appropriations Bill for the fiscal year 2018. The move was surprising, considering Rep. Lee's reputation as being one of the most liberal members of the House. The House Appropriations Committee, like every committee, is majority Republican, and all but one Republican, Kay Granger of Texas, voted in favor of repealing the 2001 AUMF. The amendment adoption comes at a time of growing concern over 45's competency, or lack thereof, as commander-in-chief, and rising tensions with Syria, North Korea, and others. Rep. Lee released a statement praising her colleagues for their bipartisan support, stating, At long last, I am pleased that my Democratic and Republican colleagues supported my effort to put an end to the overly broad blank check for war that is the 2001 AUMF, if passed.